traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. If you're not from China, you may never have heard of Wenzhou. However, the city's indigents have a long history of taking their entrepreneurial spirit and resettling across the world. We tell the story of their remarkable impact on Europe's cities. And a look at the 50-year-old pre-apocalyptic film that painted an uncomfortably recognizable picture of our world today. first. This week, Russia's President Vladimir Putin made a surprise visit to troops in Ukraine. In images released by the Kremlin, he's seen meeting and greeting commanders in the occupied regions of Kherson and Luhansk. It was his second visit in as many months, and he wasn't the only one dropping in on the troops. Just a few hundred miles away, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, also paid a visit to the front line. In the small eastern city in the Donetsk province, he was shown briefing commanders and handing out awards to soldiers. The visit comes at a time when all eyes are on Ukrainian forces. After withstanding a gruelling winter assault in the Donbass region, many think they're ready to mount a counteroffensive of their own. But how that might unfold is less than clear. Ukraine is planning a big counteroffensive. We don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know what it will look like, but we know it's coming. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor. There's a really palpable sense that this could be the decisive moment in the conflict. This could be Ukraine's chance at getting back lots of its territory and breaking the back of the Russian army in Ukraine. Okay, so talk us through it. You said you don't know exactly where, but where are we likely to see this counteroffensive? Well, we've heard Ukraine's security chiefs say that only five officials have knowledge of the offensive. It's very tightly held, but there's a general sense that the most strategic territory in Ukraine is the south, that is Zaporizhia and Kherson provinces. The reason for that is twofold. One reason is that that is the territory that covers Russia's so-called land bridge to Crimea, a strip of territory that connects Russian soil to the Crimean Peninsula that it illegally occupied and annexed in 2014. And the other reason is that Ukraine wants to secure its access to the sea. And so a sort of southward thrust 
down in Zaporizhia towards the city of Melitopol would sever that Russian land bridge between the occupied regions of Donbass and Crimea. And it would also perhaps capture pockets of Russian forces in the south. Obviously, that's the most important bit of land, but Russia knows it's the most important bit of land and has been fortifying it accordingly. So, for example, you have seen the Russians build three layers of defensive lines, things like trenches, anti-tank traps, ditches, along about 120 kilometers of the front, because they know that's the most obvious place for a Ukrainian offensive. Okay, so on one side, you've got Russia preparing for a big push. But what does Ukraine's offensive force look like? We don't have it in exact sense, but we do have the benefit of a number of leaked American documents that date to about the end of February and early March. They describe an offensive force of around a dozen brigades. A brigade is, let's say, somewhere between three and 5,000 men. And of those dozen brigades, about nine are armed and supplied by Western allies. And those ones will have more than 200 tanks, including the German Leopard, which was a subject of great debate a few months ago, about 800 other armoured vehicles, and 150 pieces of field artillery in total. So that's quite a lot, but there are some weaknesses. There are a lot of vehicles that are either very lightly armoured, the amount of artillery is relatively modest, and if you think about the sheer size of this front, you know, I talked about 120 kilometers of defenses, the whole front is getting on 900 plus kilometers, I think, then a dozen brigades is not an awful lot, given the number of Russian forces on the other side, and given how dug in and defended they are at this point. So you've painted a picture of what their force looks like, but how might Ukraine deploy these forces in a counteroffensive? One of the principles for any army going on the attack is you have to concentrate your forces. You have to get them together and punch through the defences to apply the most pressure you can. The problem is that when you concentrate your forces, when you put all your, your tanks and your armoured vehicles in one place, they become much easier to detect. And that means the Russians can attack them. It also means that they can predict where the offensive is going to come and they can reinforce the lines at that point, which may make an offensive even more difficult. So if Ukraine wants to be able to break through Russian lines, uh, then it's going to have to be very creative about this. What we could therefore see, rather than a kind of big Normandy-style D-Day landing, everything in one place, is that we see a number of smaller mini-offensives, which is trying to lull the Russians into a sense of complacency to make them think that the offensive is coming perhaps in the east, somewhere else, and they may strike in the true location a little bit later on. But that's still going to be very difficult. It sounds like this is going to require quite some coordination. Do you think that Ukraine's army is prepared for this? Do you think they're prepared to deal with all these logistical obstacles? It's such an important question that I think we don't have a, a surefire answer to. To date, Ukraine's army has largely conducted its offensive operations at lower levels, things like individual brigades, most of it at the level of companies, which are much smaller formations. And although it has used artillery, infantry, armor, all of these capabilities, it hasn't necessarily done them in a way that we would call combined arms maneuver. That is, not just firing off your artillery pieces and then an hour later sending your infantry through, but doing it in a completely synchronized way so that armor, infantry, artillery, electronic warfare, cyber forces, air forces 
are all working seamlessly together. That's a really difficult thing. And Ukraine does not have much experience of that. Now, I should say that Western officials who have been training Ukraine's forces in Germany and other places have been working on this. They've been working on Ukrainian command and control. But nonetheless, that first moment when this Ukrainian force comes into the crunch with Russian defences, I think everyone is going to be holding their breath because nobody knows exactly how that's going to go down. And in light of all this, what's the perception of how this might pan out? Well, it's important to set expectations. And last year in Kharkiv province, we saw the Ukrainians break through and send the Russian army reeling, running back, retreating, and it was chaos. They couldn't really exploit that very far because they ran out of momentum, but they did break through. I think the challenge is now we face much better defended Russian lines. On the one hand, we see a Russian army that has exhausted itself in the last several months of these completely pointless, attritional offensives in eastern Ukraine. And we also see a Ukrainian army that is much better equipped, that is much better trained than it was last year, and that has high morale because it's liberating its own territory. It is freeing Ukrainian soil. But I think if you talk to Western officials, and indeed if you look at some of the leaked American assessments that have come out in the leaked Pentagon documents in the last couple of weeks, you see that the baseline scenario is still that people expect Ukraine to make only modest gains. And Shashank, are we certain that there will be a counteroffensive? I think so. The Ukrainians can't wait indefinitely because the Russians are currently in a very weak spot. They have been exhausting themselves. They've been running low on ammunition. And so you don't want to give them time to replenish those forces. On the other hand, there are some kind of geographic constraints. The ground in Ukraine is very muddy right now. We saw how that made life very difficult for Russian invading forces last spring. That could be difficult for Ukrainian offensive forces now if they were to go. So they might also want to wait a little while to get some final bits of kit from the West to finish off some of the training. But I think the bigger issue is not whether there will or won't be an offensive The worry among some people is that this could be the high watermark of Western aid. You have America's elections next year in which officials more sceptical of Ukraine and aid to Ukraine may gain power. And you'll have shortages of equipment in the West. We've given away lots of our stuff. So I think one of the biggest questions is what happens in the aftermath of an offensive? Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Shashank, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The city of Wanzhou is on China's coast. It's a very large city, more than 9 million people, including inhabitants of its outlying towns and villages. James Miles writes about China for The Economist. 
It is surrounded by hills that have cut it off from the rest of Zhejiang province, where it's located. And, you know, that's been part of its historical identity, being separate. It wasn't until the 1990s that it got its first rail link with the rest of the country. Above all, Wenzhou is known across China for what is sometimes referred to as the Wenzhou spirit, Wenzhou Jingshan, which is basically about entrepreneurship, doing business. Tell us more about that. Tell us about the Wenzhou spirit. Every Chinese city likes to describe itself as special and good at doing this or that. But I think it is actually strikingly true of Wanzhou. Across China, people will talk about the Wanzhounese presence. In the property market, for example, Wanzhounese are famous for becoming wealthy by flipping property. And even back during the Mao Zedong era, when the economy of China was tightly controlled, the Wanzhounese had a reputation as people who you know, got around those ideological barriers to business. And this image has persisted to this day. Hello, 大家好,我是Justin黄明浩. That's from a show I found online called Who Wants to Open a Shop? It was broadcast by a provincial TV network in 2019, and it's about becoming a small business owner. Here we see Justin, a suave-looking young man, vying for the attention of the crowd. And instead of telling them about his experience as an entrepreneur, he tells them simply, I'm from Wenzhou. What makes that special? Well, he has some couplets written down. We start from nothing and struggle hard. We have incredible entrepreneurial spirit. And where's that spirit taking the Wenzhounese? Well, it's taken them not only across China, but across the world. And it's particularly striking in Europe. They've become a huge part of the European economy. In 1999, my parents had restaurants. I paid a visit to Paris where I met Wang Rui, who's typical of this kind of migration. Uh, We met there in a cafe. The customers were Chinese people. And he told me about how his parents had started their life in France back in 1995 as illegal migrants. And like many Wanjonese at the time, they started at the very bottom of society. They work as illegal migrants. They mm. work, for example, my mother, she does um, manufacturing the clothes at home. But after a few years, a left-wing government in France provided an amnesty, which enabled the Wangs to get papers. And at the age of 18, Wang Rui became a French citizen and then made something of himself, avoiding the traditional route to entrepreneurial success in clothing and, and catering sectors. Now, now I'm 25. <clears throat> I, I do my, my own business and I, I analyse what I saw. He's a canny entrepreneur. So what do you think is the next um, trendy business? Oh, this is a secret. (laughs) James, what kinds of industries are Wenzhounese most commonly involved in? In Paris in 2015, Wenzhounese 
tycoon called Xie Shangwang opened Europe's biggest textile trading centre in a Parisian suburb. You can see the Wanjoni's presence in Paris in its catering industry. And in the past few years, Wanjoni's-run Japanese restaurants have proliferated in the city. And in fact, they now outnumber those with Japanese owners by 10 to 1, according to a PhD student at Sorbonne University who I met there who focuses on Chinese involvement in the Parisian catering industry. They're even now starting to, to take over a lot of the famous café tabac shops in the city. These are part of the fabric of uh, Parisian life, where people hang out, drink coffee, and buy tobacco. And the success of Wanjonis, this variety of business in France, is something that's not lost on people back home. Uh, in 2007, there was a major television series in China called Wanjonis in Paris. <laughs> It tells the story of several generations of Wanzhou people working hard to realize their dreams in the city, just like Wang Rui and his family. And are there Wenzhenese in other cities? Well, actually, their biggest presence is in Italy. And I visited Prato in Tuscany, where the Wanjonese have a huge presence. Very striking indeed. This is a traditional medieval Italian town, but on the edge of its huge industrial area, which is predominantly Wanjonese. In 1989, there were just 38 ethnic Chinese people living in Prato. Now there are about 35,000 and thousands more in the nearby regional capital, Florence. They control the three knives in the city. And those three knives refer to the instruments that are commonly used in making textiles, in the leather making industry, and also in catering. And how is this flow of people out of Wenjo viewed at home? Is it a worry that some of their best entrepreneurs have left, or is it a source of pride? The flow of people out of Wenjo, I think, is very much a matter of pride, their global presence, their success in business in in a number of cities in Europe is something that many people in Wanzhou, back in China, feel is is now part of the city's identity, even in the names of buildings, restaurants, cafes in, in Wanzhou, you'll often find European names. They relish that connection. And it's also for good economic reason. These global connections, but particularly in Europe, enable Wanzhou to readily tap into to markets abroad, to get investment from this diaspora. It's something the local government very much encourages. And indeed, they've set up a global Wanzhounese association precisely in order to promote such connections. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We know Charlton Heston as a great movie star and a great actor. Nicholas Barber writes about culture for The Economist. But if we know him as far as his politics is concerned, we probably think of him as pretty right-wing. In his later years, he was a staunch Reaganite. He was the president of the National Rifle Association. I have only five words for you. From my cold, dead hands! But... Earlier on in his career, he was actually 
quite left-wing. He was a Democrat. He marched for the civil rights movement. And in the 60s and 70s, he starred in three dystopian science fiction thrillers, which you could pretty much class as left-wing. They're all about the damage that we humans can do to the environment and how catastrophic it can be. The first of these, the most famous of all, from 1968, is Planet of the Apes. Discover Planet of the Apes. Then a couple of years later, he makes The Omega Man, which is adapted from the Richard Matheson novel, I Am Legend. There is no phone ringing, dammit! And in that one, once again, civilization has been wiped out, this time by biological warfare. And then, a couple of years after that, was Soylent Green. What is the secret of Soylent Green? Soylent Green came out 50 years ago today. New York City. The interesting thing about it is that it's set in 2022. So not only is it 50 years old, it's set last year. So you can't really watch it now without comparing it to reality. And in this one, civilization hasn't quite been wiped out, which is a change from the last two but it is on its last legs. Charlton Heston stars in Soylent Green as Detective Thorne. He's a police detective. And a murder investigation takes him to a spacious apartment where a plutocrat lives and has been murdered. And it's got all these luxuries in it that uh, Thorne has never really experienced. It's got hot and cold running water. It's got air conditioning. It's got fresh apples and even a bit of beef. He also discovered that there's something wrong with this substance called Soylent Green, hence the title. Basically, fresh food has almost run out, and people are eating these rather tasteless wafers that are produced by the massive Soylent Corporation. Soylent Red, Soylent Yellow, and the latest one, which is meant to be more nutritious than anything else, is Soylent Green, which is supposedly made from plankton. What he discovers is that Soylent Green is actually made from dead bodies. Tell everybody. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them. Silent Green is people! It's quite a bold film, and one of the most bold things about it is that it's showing us a world where the populace is having a really rough time, and yet there's no sense that that's going to change at all. The frightening thing about it is that there hasn't been an apocalypse. So many science fiction films are about life after the apocalypse, but life has carried on. There hasn't been a nuclear war, but there has been climate change. There's been all sorts of pollution, deforestation, animals have died out, the countryside's gone, the oceans are dying, and the cities are overpopulated. So watching it now, it is quite spooky to think, actually, you know, it's not too scary when you see a film about gorillas taking over the world. But when you're watching a film now and it's about New York City and it's overcrowded, there's this great divide between the rich and the poor and it's just permanently hot and stiflingly sweaty all year round. Set in 2022, when of course we had quite the heat wave. And this film is all set during the heat wave. As a vision of the future, it's actually much more recognisable than a lot of films. Partly that's because it didn't try to be very futuristic. The filmmakers, they were setting it 50 years in the future, but they didn't put in any robots. 
They didn't put any laser guns or aliens or anything like that. They basically kept the world of the film that we see looking pretty much like the world where they were making it. And that's, of course, why it feels so recognizable. But they just twisted it here and there. And those twists, in a lot of cases, were dead on. It's quite strange how accurate some of its predictions were. for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.